Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Venezuela is on a rapid and precipitous decline. You might even say, as my guest today, Francisco Toro, wrote in a recent piece in The Atlantic, that Venezuela is falling apart. Between food, fuel, medicine, and commodity shortages, corruption, and rampant crime, this one-time middle-income country is struggling mightily. There's an incipient humanitarian crisis, and instability in Venezuela could affect the entire region. Francisco Toro is the proprietor of the blog Caracas Chronicles and co-authored the Atlantic piece with Moises Naim, who many of you probably know and was a guest on this very show last year. The piece succinctly describes the causes and consequences of Venezuela's collapse, and it begins the way we begin this conversation, with a very telling anecdote about toilet paper. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives, including that long conversation I had with Moises Naim, in which we discuss his life and career, helping to start Foreign Policy Magazine, his work in the Venezuelan government, his experience as an immigrant child from North Africa to Venezuela, all very interesting stuff, all told in one of my long-form conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and newsmakers. And once a week, I also post shorter conversations about something topical and in the news or something that ought to be more in the news, like the collapse of Venezuela. So to that end, here is my conversation with Francisco Toro. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. This person needed uh, some toilet paper for his factory. He runs a, a medium-sized manufacturing firm. And as part of his collective bargaining agreement, he was bound to have toilet paper in, in the bathrooms of the factory at all times. And that sounds like a detail, but it's not because it's very difficult to source toilet paper at all in Venezuela these days. And if he didn't keep the bathroom stocked, he would be giving the pro-government union a reason to to launch a strike against them. And and we know that those kinds of things can end up with expropriations. They often have labor labor actions end up in expropriation all the time. So really, his factory ended up at risk, and he needed to get some toilet paper, and he couldn't. And he was desperate, so he started looking around in in the black market. Basically, he finally found a supplier able to get get him a big load of toilet paper all at once that would last several months that would solve this problem you know, and would allow him to go back to managing his factory so he went he did this deal it cost him a lot of money um it was illegal um and like black asked, market toilet paper black market toilet paper um because it's price control so you can't get it in the stores um and as the 
as the shipment was was brought into the factory, obviously the secret police had been tipped off, and they they swooped down, and they uh, arrested him. And uh, he and a couple of the of the top management people in his company ended up facing uh, criminal charges of um, of hoarding that could have landed it in landed them in jail for a long time. So, I mean, the reason we use this story is because so often you read these sort of lighter side of the news stories about Venezuela and how you can't get toilet paper and ha-ha, isn't this, you know, a funny banana republic kind of story? And what's lost in that is the way that these economic controls are used as part of, of, of a system of repression and a system of, of social control in the country. Um, so Venezuela has been on the decline for, for several years now, um, but it seems as if things are becoming worse and worse at an increasingly uh, accelerating pace. Uh, what's happened over the last few weeks to seemingly like accelerate the decline of Venezuela? It's been coming a long time, but it's it's largely it's it's the collapse in the price of oil that has precipitated everything. Venezuela has had crazy economic policies for a long time, but as long as you were pumping out two and a half million barrels of oil a day and selling them at a hundred, hundred and ten, hundred and twenty dollars each, um, you could afford a lot of craziness. You could paper over a lot of cracks. When the price of oil collapses, um, suddenly all of those chickens come home to roost. And all of the unsustainability in the policy in the policy frameworks um, starts crowding in on you at once. So the debt that you contracted that you really shouldn't have contracted because you were in the middle of an oil bonanza. Well, you were borrowing money and now you have to pay it back. But now you don't have the money to pay it back because you need to pay for imports because you also destroyed the the productive potential of the country by expropriating all these factories. Um, and and you also need the dollars to to just import food. You need the dollars to import the things that the country needs to survive. But then you also need them to pay back these debts that you accumulated. And all these things are crowding in at the same time around a government that has shown itself completely catatonic and just unable to to respond in a minimally reasonable way. Uh, I mean, does the sort of sort of incompetent uh, politics and and the shrinking of like the democratic space in in Venezuela um, sort of precipitate the decline, or was it really all sort of driven by the decline in the price of oil? That is, so long as oil was selling for uh, you know hundreds of dollars a barrel, uh, people would would sort of um, be a little more tolerant of of the kind of chavismo politics. Well. Look, there hasn't been a similar collapse in living standards in any other petrostate, not not in Russia, not not in Iran, not in Kazakhstan, not in Ecuador. Nowhere in the world have we seen this this kind of collapse in living standards and and real hunger and shortages of because it's not just toilet paper; it's everything. It's all the basics that you need to live in to live with. So. The collapse in the price of oil, what it does is precipitate precipitate a crisis, but it doesn't cause a crisis. What causes a crisis is that you're trying to run an economy in the 21st century 
using Bolshevik economics, basically. You're trying to administratively set prices for everything. You are uh, expropriating virtually all the large companies that were in private hands and many of the medium-sized ones. And uh, you are uh, trying to run an economy with a degree of control that is incompatible with economic life in 2016. So um, I, I think that the, the question is not – You almost. I almost want to flip it. I, I almost want to ask the question the other way around. The question is, why didn't this happen in 2002? Why didn't this happen in 2005? Why, why did it take 17 years for these crazy decisions to catch up with the government, then there the answer is oil. There the answer is that you had this oil bonanza that, that intervened to make it all take longer and to, to make it all seem more more sustainable than it was. But it, it, it never was. And, and to those of us who followed it closely, actually looked at the, at the way economic policy was made and the way decisions were talked about um, – it was clear all along that these people were in no way qualified to to run an economy in the 21st century. Um, can you describe a, a little bit about how the sort of price controls have undermined the the economy and the ability of manufacturers to you know create stuff to stock the shelves uh, in the stores that people can buy, like like toilet paper. Um, well, it, it's really kind of economics 101 stuff. It's not complicated. This is the easiest economic problem in the book. Usually, if you open any microeconomics textbook from any undergraduate course, you'll find this in chapter one or two. Um, you set price controls below production levels. Can anybody afford to produce below production levels? No. So what you're really saying, when when it costs you, you know, 10 bolivares to produce a kilo of chicken, and you're saying that the maximum allowed price is eight, what you're really saying is that the government will go, will import the chicken at 10 from somewhere else, and will come and will sell it at eight inside the country, and it, which which really amounts to sort of self-dumping in the in this strange kind of way. I mean, if anybody else, if a trade partner does that to the United States, you, you start a WTO action against them. But here in, in Venezuela, what we get is a government doing that to its own economy. And so the, a lot of the question that I think economists and, and in expert circles that you've, that you've been hearing people ask over the last few years is, well, are they doing this on purpose? Is this a mechanism for destroying the bourgeoisie, which is, which is what they profess to, to want to do? Or is this more about them just lacking sort of the, the most basic tools of economic reasoning and just not realizing what the outcome of that is going to be. Or the third option, which is the one that, that I tend to, to believe in more, is, is it about corruption? How much of this is really about corruption? Um, if you're having to buy chicken at 10 outside the country to come in and sell it at 8, it's probably because you are paying twelve, and the extra two you're splitting with kickbacks with the supplier in the in the neighboring country. So um, that, to me, is the most reasonable explanation of, of why a country would engage in a policy uh, framework that is so sort of deliriously and self-evidently self-destructive. So there, I, there's no other. Ha, have other there way been to make reported sense. cases of corruption along the lines you're talking about, where political leaders well, make seemingly irrational economic decisions, uh, but it turns out it's because they're lining their own pockets? Tons. Um, it's just that none of them, the problem with that is that none of them get investigated inside Venezuela because the same people who run the rackets 
um, run the investigative police and run the, the prosecution service. But if you look in Uruguay, if you look in Brazil, in Brazil now with the, the big corruption investigations with Odebrecht and, and other Brazilian companies, a lot of details that involve Venezuelan state buyers have come out. Um, it, it's really not difficult to to find these stories. If you look for them, there were just a couple of arrests uh, with um, these kinds of kickback scandals regarding the energy industry and, and energy generation equipment in the United States uh, in the last couple of months. Um, because, of course, it's not just food and, and basic products. It's, it's also things like uh, like capital equipment, pretty much anything that you can think of. If you remember, Venezuela made a trillion dollars with, with a TR, right? A trillion dollars in, in oil revenues over the last 16 years. So that is that is just a lot of money to fund a lot of corruption in almost any any sphere of life that you can think of. Um even medicine importations. I'm just remembering now there there was a big story recently about the way the Venezuelan Social Security Institute, which runs uh, a series of hospitals in Venezuela, um, participated in in corrupt bids for hundreds of millions of dollars in medicines that were supposed to come into a country that disappeared into people's bank accounts. Um, I I could go on and on, but so you have this line um, in the piece that I find so interesting that. That speaks, I think, to the like social uh, dimensions of Venezuela's you know collapse, which is you say that in the last two years, Venezuela has experienced the kind of implosion that hardly ever occurs in middle income countries like it outside of war. Um, can you talk a little bit about the ways in which ordinary uh, Venezuelans, perhaps poor Venezuelans, are experiencing this this collapse? Some of the stories, many of the stories are really painful at this point um, and and get very personal. Um, one of the things that that hits that hits me in the gut is the problem with importing uh, chemotherapy drugs and antiretrovirals. Um, they're just not available. It's just like toilet paper. And if you're not rich and you can't afford to go to the black market, then you get them sometimes, but you don't get them other times. If you have cancer or if you have HIV, sometimes it's just not good enough. So people die, and they know people who have died of diseases that could have been treated, that ought to have been treated, but that couldn't be treated because they couldn't get medicines. Uh, and even even medicines or even like afflictions of low income countries of the developing world like malaria are are malaria. On the increase as well. Well, the the, the story about malaria is, is particularly shocking in that malaria had been eradicated from Venezuela twenty five years ago. There was no malaria in Venezuela, so this is not a kind of situation where you can say, well, it's you know it's a tropical country. There's malaria. There's always been malaria. No, we had beat malaria and now it's back and now people are dying because anti-malarials that cost a dollar or two uh, for a treatment course uh, aren't, aren't available. Yeah. I mean, um, you have like a, you know, another middle income country that's gone, um, you know, that's disintegrated is, is Syria, right? And you have the same thing. You have like resurgence of polio in Syria and all these sort of um, diseases of very poor countries that had been eradicated are, are coming back in one. Right. I, I suppose that's particularly... Um, problematic in in Venezuela is is the the Zika uh, outbreak, which uh, you know is is will hit and is hitting Venezuela. I think pretty 
pretty tough, but there's really probably no way of of monitoring or let alone treating uh, people that have been uh, afflicted. Well, it's it's shocking because as we write about in the piece, the Institute for Tropical Medicine at the Universidad Central, which is a, the main research institute for tropical disease in the, in the country, has been robbed 11 times this year. They've robbed each every last microscope in the lab. So the the crime epidemic also feeds into this. Uh, <coughs> so sorry, I have a cough. That's okay. <coughs> uh, sorry um, about that. No, 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 no problem, no problem. Um, so, so what? Like, what's next? How long can uh, Maduro stay in in power? I mean, like, what what are some of the likely political outcomes of this collapse? Well, there's this famous paper written in the 1980s uh, by uh, Rudyard Dornbush um, called The Macroeconomics of Populism that I think a lot of Venezuelan intellectuals have been reading back on. It's written in 1986 when you know, time was when Latin American countries got into terrible macroeconomic problems, hyperinflation episodes and things like this relatively regularly until they figured out not to do the the policy mistakes that get you into this kind of position. But uh, Dornbush writes uh, about the cycle of uh, populist macroeconomics. And the last stage of that cycle almost always includes a collapse in the regime and a change in, in government. We are now clearly towards the end of the macroeconomics of populism cycle. It's just taking us a long time because of those, those oil revenues. Um, now, the problem is that that dot, 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 and then the regime collapses, takes many forms, and some of those forms in Venezuela are genuinely scary. Why? Because Chavismo has made sure over the last 15 years that its most committed supporters should be armed and should be organized into colectivos and militias and these really paramilitary organizations. And they're there, they operate, they just had a major nationwide um, military exercise to um, to check the, the operational preparedness of these uh, paramilitary forces. And those guys are there, and the government is very keen on letting everyone know that those people are there. So in a situation where the government either collapses or where there's a big outbreak of looting nationwide, like we saw in 1989, or some episode of political violence that forces people within the military to step in and, and call a timeout, um, you have this problem that you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of very extreme ideological chavistas with weapons in every city, town, and village all over the country. So it's not even like the army can be the um, sort of guarantor of stability. There's a lot. There's a big question mark over that. I mean, it, it, this is not... This is not something that casually happened. This is something that the government has been planning for a long time, precisely because after the, the abort, aborted coup in 2002, when Chavez lost power for about 48 hours before coming back, at that point, Chavez realized, wow, maybe I can't trust the army entirely. Maybe I need to make sure that my most radical supporters are able – that they have my back. And so they, that's uh, – that's very much live and in play, and Maluda is calculating around that. But at the same time, the army is, um, which is perceived as being somewhat more institutional, especially along the middle ranks, um, it understands that that keeping getting control of the country without an agreement from the armed 
part of the pro-Chavez movement. This is not going to be possible. So what this brings you back to is this idea that uh, eventually you're going to need a negotiation. You're going to need a very tough, high-stakes negotiation between the government and the opposition, probably with a mediator. The Vatican keeps being talked about in possibly as taking on this role. But you're going to have to have a negotiation with the government that perhaps the only part of their ideology that they've never wavered on for the last 17 years is no negotiations. They never negotiate. That is their reason for being. That is Chavez's initial pitch to the population back in 1998 is I'm not going to negotiate with these people because they're evil. And that is at the center of their understanding of themselves. So you need to have a negotiation with people whose main political goal in life is to not negotiate with you. So you're saying the Vatican uh, could be the interlocutor and the, and the mediator uh, of this? I mean, that, that's sort of fascinating to me. I've, I've actually done like a whole episode on Pope Francis's diplomatic acumen. He is a very and exceedingly like, uh, skilled diplomatic ninja, I, I call him. Um, but there is word that he might get involved in internal Venezuelan politics. There was a... Um, High-profile visit from uh, Monsignor uh, Paul Gallagher, um, who, who was supposed to show up in Caracas actually this week, which was canceled at the last minute. There is a lot of chatter. It's very clear that Cardinal Paolini, who is now the uh, Secretary of State, basically for the Vatican, is uh, well. He used to be known to him in Caracas, so he knows the country very well. He knows the players. He's interested. Uh, Pope Francis himself, clearly South American, knows the Venezuelan situation very, very well. So there, there are a lot of indications that uh, the Vatican might be interested in that role. But also the Vatican is the only imaginable instance left that is trusted by both sides, and particularly in the wake of the Cuban mediation. Um, it, it, I'm not saying it's a good idea, but it's the least bad idea anybody has had. Uh, well, Francisco, thank you so much. This is uh, fascinating. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it just seems like a one of the big important stories to follow in the coming year is, you know, what is the outcome of Venezuela's impending dissolution? Or not dissolution, but in, in, in impending just disintegration is probably a better word. There's no nice word for what's happening in Mexico. All right. All right, Francisco, thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. And I do think the collapse of Venezuela is going to be one of the big uh, global issues, at least in this hemisphere, over the next year. Uh, just one quick note before I go. I've mentioned this uh, before, maybe a couple weeks ago, but Global Dispatches is currently seeking some partnerships, uh, whether that be advertising or content creation partnerships, or some sort of institutional uh, affiliation. I'm at the point with the podcast now where we are growing really rapidly. We're reaching thousands of people uh, with every episode and tens of thousands of people every month. And I'm at the point where it makes sense uh, for me to invest deeper into the podcast, to keep growing these things, to keep not only bringing you content reliably week over week, but 
increasing the influence, increasing the reach of this this podcast. We, as I said, um, have really expanded rapidly over the last few months, and I want to seize on that momentum. And to that end, I am looking for partners in this endeavor. It could be advertisers or content partnerships or some sort of institutional affiliation. But if you or someone you know might be interested in learning more uh, about ways in which global dispatches can partner with that entity, please let me know. Hit up the uh, contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And worry not, content will keep coming. I will see you later. Bye.